Church, I hope I didn't freak anybody out by my prayer that I said this morning when I asked the question if people think or if the community would even notice if Bemis United Methodist Church closed their doors today. Don't worry about it. We're not closing our doors anytime in the near future. Uh, but it's a question that we should frequently ask ourselves. If we closed our doors, would anybody care outside of the sanctuary? Would anybody notice? And if our answer to that question is no, then we're doing something or something horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. We are missing the mark on something big. The church should be noticeably present in their community. Whether we're serving inside of the church or serving and loving people outside of the church, our answer to that question, if we close our doors, should be an, an absolute yes, we would be missed. And that's a question we need to ask ourselves and ask ourselves very, very frequently. Um, after the service last week, Sandy told me that it sounded like I was I was mad at some point during the service. I think it was towards the end, and I was I was preaching pretty hard, hard, hard for me anyway. And I think I asked for the congregation to give me an amen, and, and nobody said anything. <laughs> so I asked for it again, and I finally got one. She said, "You kind of seem kind of seem mad about that, Jerry." You know, folks, I'm not mad. I don't ever want to be construed as being mad when I'm up here preaching, but I am passionate. I'm passionate about God, and I'm passionate about Jesus because God and Jesus are passionate about me, and they are passionate about you. In my humble opinion, and I'm just one person, I'm just a, and I'll tell you when I'm sharing my opinion, but in my humble opinion, we have lost something in, in the United Methodist Church. We've lost something in the Methodist Church in general. We have become a little bit too refined over the decades, maybe a little bit too proper. And I'm not asking you all to become anything that you're not. I don't want anybody to be anything that they're not. But there was a time when the Methodist Church was on fire for God, and I don't see that as a whole in the United Methodist Church today. And it shouldn't be that way. There was a time when the Holy Spirit flowed freely throughout the Methodist Church, especially in the beginnings. That's why we grew as quickly as we grew, as fast as we grew, because the Holy Spirit was working through us. He was working through some of these early guys, Charles and John Wesley, some of these folks who were involved in the early movement. And that's why you saw Methodism explode in the United States and in England in the early years. Come the 20th century, we start falling down. We start seeing people disappearing from our churches. We were once the biggest denomination in the United States. 20th century rolls around, our numbers start going downward, 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 downward. That fire, that passion that we had in our churches is noticeably absent. We get a little bit too involved. What was the word that we used this morning, Rudy, in our Sunday school lesson? I, I wish I could think of it because it was right on target. Maybe we're just, again, a little bit too refined. We're a little bit too comfortable not being passionate our faith because maybe it isn't cool to be faithful maybe it's not popular to express our faith and express our love for God outside of the church or even inside of the church for that matter and it is folks it is let me explain something to you we're talking about the kingdom of God over the last over the next several weeks we talked about it last week we're going to talk about it this week we're going to talk about it or at least one more but probably two more weeks kingdom of God is why we are here. We are here. If we are saved, if we are born again, if we're followers of Christ, we are residents. We are participants in God's kingdom. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're here for no other purpose. And that's what I'm trying to get through to you guys. So
so why this is so important and that it is so important. Okay? I did not get into ministry to prop up a denomination. I did not get into ministry to pull a paycheck down. I couldn't care less. When I first was called to serve in the pulpit, Sandy and I were willing to take a pay cut from the previous job that I was where I was currently employed. I don't care anything about drawing a massive paycheck. I don't care anything about propping up a church. What I do care about is the kingdom of God. What I do care about is Christ. And what I do care about is hopefully the Holy Spirit working through me to get this through to other Christians. That this is why we're here. I want other people to share in that passion. You ain't got to act passionately for the sake of me, by, for goodness sakes. I never want that. I just want people to be passionate about God. I want people to be passionate about Jesus. Rudy Coop, I want people to embrace the forgiveness that we talked about this morning. I want us to be so overwhelmed with the forgiveness and the mercy that God gives us that we come down here like we used to in the old days from time to time where the tears are flowing, where the snot is flowing, where people see the Holy Spirit moving in our churches, for goodness sakes. That's why I'm in ministry. That's why I'm in ministry. It ain't about a dollar for me, folks. I can make a dollar anywhere I want to make a dollar, I'm sure. This is what it's about. God has called me to preach for some reason. He called this sinner, this former substance abuser, to fill a pulpit and to love you guys. I can't explain it. I don't know why it happened, but it happened. And I believe this is my purpose. Not that God is going to use me, not that I'm anything great. I'm not. But I want to see our not just our sanctuaries filled, but I want people to walk into our sanctuary, and I want the presence of the Holy Spirit to be so thick in here that it's undeniable. And I want us congregations that are on fire, people who are on fire for God, again, inside the walls, but also outside the walls, where we're serving people, where we're loving people, where we're showing people the love and the grace that Christ offers, the love and the grace that the church offers, the community that the church offers. So this week is our second week again of exploring the kingdom of God. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. I would say probably in the Gospels that's the subject that he talked about the most, that he preached about the most, uh, that, he, that, he, that he taught about the most. There's all kinds of stories that Christ tells us but both, both by Christ himself and just stories in general about the kingdom of God that give us real clarity and real understanding as to what the kingdom of God is and what exactly God was doing when he was bringing that kingdom into the world through Christ Jesus. Last week we said that pretty much every story that we find about the kingdom of God is kind of like a treasure that reveals uh, eternal truths to us, truths, truths that we are called to embrace and that we are invited into as followers of Jesus Christ, as participants, again, as citizens of God's kingdom. Citizens of God's kingdom. I want you guys to think about that. I want you guys to, to draw that into your hearts as much as you possibly can to the point where we really understand it. That we are citizens of God's kingdom, first, foremost, above all. That is our identity. That is who we are calling ourselves Christians, if we're calling ourselves Christ followers, calling ourselves disciples, then we are not just participants, but we are citizens, citizens who are what? Under the rule of a Lord, the rule of the Lord, who is Christ Jesus, once again. Last week we talked about a story um, on the kingdom of God, 
where a treasure was found buried in a field. If y'all remember this correctly, it was a parable that Jesus told. In it, uh, a man found a treasure buried in the field. Uh, he, he, he put it back in the earth, went and sold everything that he had, and then he came back and he bought that land. The kingdom of God, here's the point of, 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 of that story that we talked about last week. The kingdom of God is worth any price. That man sacrificed everything that he had to go back and buy that treasure in the, in the story that Jesus told because it was worth it. It was worth that sacrifice, and the kingdom of God is worth any sacrifice that we can give in order to experience the full life that Jesus has to offer us. I told you that living in God's kingdom on earth, being devoted to the kingdom of God above everything else, will not just cause us to have to make some sacrifices, but that every sacrifice is worth it. Every sacrifice we make is worth it. And it's not just me that's telling you that. Jesus himself tells us that in the scriptures. I pointed that out to you. I encouraged you guys last week not to waste your life. Don't waste your life on earthly pursuits. Don't waste your life on pursuits, dreams that everybody on earth, everybody in our culture, particularly in the American culture, tries to sell you as the purpose of your life. It's not about getting the big house. It's not about getting the best job. It's not about being the most popular. It's not about having the most social input. It's not about having the most expensive cars, most expensive vehicles. I'm not telling you anything's wrong with that stuff. There's nothing in and of themselves. Again, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. But that's not your main purpose. That's not your main pursuit in life. And it is, if it is, and don't be mad at me for saying this, but if it is, you got an idol in your life. Okay? Plain and simple. It's just, it's just truth. If these things are the main pursuit of your life, you are putting something ahead of of Jesus Christ, and by its very definition, you are worshiping an idol. It may not be a literal golden calf, but you're worshiping it. Your form of worship is what you pursue the most, what you think about the most, what you love the most. And if it ain't Jesus, it's something else. Christianity 101 calls that an idol. I encourage you guys last week to live that life that is truly well lived sole purpose of being image bearers of Christ and the sole purpose of being citizens of the kingdom of God. I forgot to mention when I, during the announcement time that we are uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount in our Wednesday night studies right now. We just we just started it <coughs> uh, this last Wednesday. In the study guide that we're using the very first paragraph the very first paragraph that the author writes in this study guide says this and I could not have said this any better and I could not have put it more succinctly but the very first thing that we read Wednesday night in our study guide says this he writes the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best And you know, stay with me, stay with me, I'm going to follow this up don't, don't let me lose you here the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. I cannot agree with this author any more. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. If you want to know, why are you talking about the Sermon on the Mount all of a sudden, Jerry? If you want to know what it looks like and what it means to be a citizen 
under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, you have no further to look than Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what it means and what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom, look at those few chapters. If I could recommend that you read nothing outside of the Bible for the rest of your life, master those three chapters of the Bible. Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. That's primarily the reason that I picked that topic for our Wednesday night studies this time. So that we can understand this, so that we can embrace it. Being, like the author writes, being and doing the things that Jesus said to be and do as residents of God's kingdom. Y'all have heard me say that before. What's our biggest calling? To be and do the things that Jesus said to be and do. It's not going to be easy. The Sermon on the Mount, the directives given, the commandments given are not easy. It's not easy to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's not easy to be a devoted citizen of the kingdom of God. It is sacrificial. It's going to cost us some things. It's going to cost us some relationships. Sometimes it's even going to cost us some family. It's probably going to cost us some social status. It may even cost us a little bit in our bank account, God forbid. But folks, again, it's worth it. It's worth every, every, everything that we have to sacrifice to embrace it. Today we're going to talk about another kingdom aspect or another kingdom treasure. <clears throat> it kind of reveals a little bit more of what God offers us. You know, in our lives, and again, and again, again, this is a cultural thing. In our lives, oftentimes, we want to do big things. The bigger, the better. We want to see great things accomplished on great and large scales. Whether it's in ministry, for folks like me, whether it's in your work lives, whether it's in your personal lives, again, the bigger, the better. But the truth is, just because something is big does not mean, or just because something is small, does not mean that it can't make a big difference. This is a kingdom principle. This is a kingdom principle that you find throughout the Bible, throughout the, throughout Holy Scripture. In the hands of God, even the most small, even the smallest, even the most insignificant things can have major, major impact. We're going to take a look real quick at, a, at, a, at one verse, I think it is, one verse in the Gospel of Matthew. And once again, in this, in this particular verse, Jesus is teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's using these stories again. He's using these parables to reveal the amazing, amazing power of God's kingdom in the world. And it comes from Matthew 13, 33. If you want to just follow that along on the screen. And most of this that we're going over, you've heard, you've, you've heard before, I'm sure. But Matthew 13, 33 <coughs> reads this. He says, he, tells them another, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Y'all probably heard that verse hundreds, dozens, if not hundreds of times. It always kind of confused me, to be honest with you. I didn't know what all this stuff about dough and, and yeast had to do with God or had to do with the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Nonetheless, Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven in this one little tiny scripture uh, to leaven or yeast. Now, I'm not a baker. I don't know if, if we got any, any bakers out there in our congregation or not. So I actually had to figure this stuff out I'm a, 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 through a little bit of study. But anyway, she is working through 60 pounds of flour, and I am a little bit familiar with flour. To me, 60 pounds of flour seems like a, seems like a lot. Anyway, she adds some, some yeast to it. 
And uh, with such a large amount of flour, what happens is this amount of yeast would be pretty tiny in comparison because this is a, this is a fermenting agent, apparently, uh, that's added to help the dough increase and grow. So a little bit of yeast, just a little bit, a tiny little bit of yeast spreads throughout that 60 pounds of, uh, of dough. Too much and the dough won't rise. Too little and uh, too, or a little bit goes a long way. Too much and it won't rise. Here's the thing. Here's what Christ is getting at. This little tiny little scripture about yeast and dough and all that stuff. A little of God's power can do big things. A little bit of God's power can do big things. Jesus uses this story of yeast to teach an important aspect of the kingdom of God. And that is that the kingdom often starts small. The kingdom of God often starts small and starts in insignificant ways, and then it grows. God gave this promise to a guy named Abraham in the Old Testament that he would grow his movement through him. Later on, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, comes in a small way, as a small child in a dirty little stable in Bethlehem, as we've talked about so much during the Advent and Christmas season. The Gospels start off with this ragtag group of 12 men who were basically just a bunch of nobodies in the eyes of the world. They were small. They were insignificant. And through these men, at the beginning, through these 12 nobodies, Christianity is now the largest religion across the globe. 2.4 billion people across the globe at least claim Jesus as Lord. That's 30% of the world's population. And it got started by one dude who was born in a stable and 12 other nobody dudes. God's kingdom has power. It starts off small, and through the power of God, it grows when God is involved. Look at some of the Bible characters that we're all familiar with. We already mentioned the disciples. Look at... Look at Moses. Moses was like me. If y'all didn't know this, Moses Moses was an introvert. Moses was not a well-spoken man. As a matter of fact, when God called him to do the things that he was called to do, Moses said, "Nah, I don't. I don't really want to do that, God. I don't. I don't speak very well. I'm no leader." In his eyes, in his own eyes, Moses was small, insignificant. Look at David, King David, who he eventually became. He wasn't king in the beginning. He was the runt of the litter. Y'all remember that? He was the runt of the litter. He was smallest of all the brothers. Look what God did with David. I'm not talking about the mistakes and the sins David committed right now. Of course, we all know about those as well. But he started off small, and he's, and he's an insignificant. It's almost as if God likes to show off his power by working through the simple, the small, and the humble sometimes. There are examples you can find, you know, where the kingdom has, has really exploded onto the scene. You can find those examples in the Bible. You can find those examples throughout history, the history of the church. Certainly, you can look at the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, where 3,000 people were brought into a relationship with Christ on one day. I talked about the Methodist movement a little bit earlier. There's another great example of how the, of how the kingdom of God just, just exploded across two nations separated separated by an, by an entire ocean. So that does happen, but more often than not, it starts off in these small, small ways. More often than not, it starts off in the 
these tiny, insignificant ways, and God works through them. Another portion of Scripture uh, that we find in John chapter 6 that you're going to be very familiar with, we can see this same principle um, as God works through a little boy, as Jesus works through a little boy, and uh, he feeds a massive, massive group of really, really hungry people. We'll read through it real quick. Again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. John 6, 1 through 14. <clears throat> Sometime after this, I like reading it from my Bible. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far off shore, far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he performed by healing the sick. Jesus went up the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and he saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy. Paisley heard me say the word bite. That's why I'm laughing. That's, that's one of her phrases <laughs> when she's hungry. I'm sorry, y'all. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small bar barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled the twelve baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, who, this is a prophet who is to come into this world. Again, I'm sure you guys have heard that story dozens, if not hundreds of times, Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000. But it's another great example of how Christ, how God can use the smallest and the most insignificant of things to grow his kingdom. 5,000 people. 5,000 people looking to Christ and his disciples to feed him. Only food that they were able to come up with was what? Five loaves of bread. Five loaves of bread, two fish. It was basically this little boy's lunch. And it was not going to go very far in this massive crowd of 5,000 folks. That is, unless Jesus put his hand to it. He tells everybody to sit down. He gives them the loaves. He takes the loaves and fish, and he gives thanks. And they distributed it so much so that there were leftovers, 12 baskets that were told. Everyone who was there was astonished, and they recognized Christ as a prophet who must have come from the kingdom of God. Again, God has a habit of taking little and doing a lot. God has a habit of taking small and making them big. This is good news for you and me ask you that question again that I asked you in the beginning and in the middle of the service when Bemis United Methodist Church closed its doors today would people notice maybe when I make that statement you say well pastor that's, that seems like a huge burden to bear to bear that seems like a massive undertaking for our, for our little church it doesn't have to be when God's hand is on it things can start off small and through the power of God they become big and again God has a habit of doing these things 
Maybe you don't feel like you have a whole lot to offer this year. Maybe you don't have a whole lot on your own. But when you put your life in your, into the hands of Christ, we can accomplish great things. There's nothing impossible for God. God cannot be contained. He can't be thwarted, and He cannot be stopped. As Christians, we have to begin to believe that the power of Jesus is available to us all. That's that power that I was talking about to you in the very, very beginning of the sermon. Do we really believe what we say we believe? Do we believe in a supernatural God that does supernatural things through really, really small people? Do we really believe that our God, the God that we claim, has the supernatural ability to do great things through a former drug and alcohol abuser? To do great things through a woman who has suffered so much pain, so much hurt, so many medical problems. Most of us couldn't even fathom. I'm going to tell you who's a blessing to me every morning. I see her on that pew, that woman right there. Miss Judy. Small, insignificant, nobodies. God uses the small, the insignificant to the world to do <laughs> his kingdom work, folks. There's nothing impossible for God. We've got to start believing this. When we trust in Jesus, folks, we're going to start seeing some real, real miracles. Kingdom of God is like a yeast in a batch of dough. It's like a little boy's lunch that Jesus used to feed 5,000 folks. The key for every Christian is being able to trust that our Father God can do anything. When we believe that, when we trust that God and Christ can work in and through us, then we trust God's ability to take a little and to make it a lot. We will become much more eager to live in the kingdom of God with joy with excitement. The Bible kind of puts it like this. It says, you know, keep believing for big things even before you see big things. Don't look to do the incredible. Start small. Believe that God is going to use the small to do great things for his kingdom. The Apostle Paul gives us some similar instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul encourages those in the church, and he encourages us to keep working, keep laboring, laboring, never give up might look small now, but wait to see what God's going to do with it, what he can, what he will do with it. That's because God meets us in the everyday. God meets us in the everyday and in the ordinary. God is in the yeast that permeates itself through that dough. God is in the fish and the loaves of a little boy's lunch that can feed 5,000 people. God meets us in the bread wine when we receive communion. God meets us in the water when we receive holy baptism. We just have to have eyes to see it. We just have to have eyes to see it. 
we will see God move in powerful ways when we look for God in little things. You're starting to see God in powerful ways. So when I ask you that question, would people miss us if we were gone? What do we have to answer? How do we make ourselves that church that would be missed if we were gone? We start in small ways. We start in small ways that become big things. You know, when I got in the ministry, when I first started, I had some grandiose ideas. You know, I never, I never, I never, I never wanted to be a pastor of a, of a big mega church. That's that's never never been in my in my in my thoughts. Couldn't care less about that. But I loved ideas, and I loved um, the idea of making a big difference, whatever that big difference might might be. And I always thought that we were going to do something. I was going to use me to do something great, not like you know globally or anything like that. But I thought that God would use me in great ways in whatever little community I happen to be in. But I don't look for that anymore. I look at the small, and I look at the ordinary, and I look at the mundane, and I look at the little things that I do every, every day that is going to that God is going to use to build His kingdom. I may never even know the outcome of it. I never, I may never even know what God puts, what situation God puts me in today that might be something huge two hundred years from. So I look for God in the small. I look for God in the everyday. I look for God in the mundane. I look for God in the small conversations that I have with people every day. I look for God when somebody calls me and asks me to pray for them. I look to God. I look for God when I do pray with people. I look for God when I put little when I put ramen noodles in the blessing box. I look for God in the man who comes who comes up to our church office begging for some gas money. This is where it starts. We actually, I actually had a, con a person in our congregation the other day make this, make a statement similar to this. That person says, you know, I, I, I just think sometimes I'm, I'm older now and I, and I can't do much, you know. How much difference can I possibly make? What an awful, horrible thought we would think that of ourselves for one thing but also that we would think that God wouldn't use us just in the smallest ways to do big things to bless people I know for a fact this person does a lot for this church and it's noticeable very very noticeable they do small things that probably go beyond the eyes of most people but I know that, that God is using him well I gave you got a 50% chance of guessing who it is now because I said him to build this church and to build his kingdom. I pointed out Judy Sly a few minutes ago. What a blessing this woman is to our church. My goodness. <laughs> if Judy can show up to church faithfully every Sunday, there is no excuse that anybody else shouldn't. Come on. You know, we talked about church attendance this morning a little bit, Rudy, in Sunday school, and, and you know why people... Maybe I didn't even share this thought with you, but but you know we were talking about motivation and how do we show how do we show our love for God? How do we show that we that we are that we really are grateful and thankful 
for God's forgiveness for us and for God's love for us. And I said, you know, well, one way we show it is, is pretty doggone simple, and that's simply going to church, being part of the, of, the, of, the, of the ministries of the church. And I ain't trying to beat anybody up when I encourage you to come to church and be part of the church ministry. Not about, not about making people feel bad or feel guilty. I don't want you to come to church. Understand this. I don't want you to come to church. I want you to want to come to church. That's what's on the heart of every, of every pastor I know. Not why don't people come to church. Why do people not want to come to church? Because that reveals something about our hearts. It reveals whether or not, and this isn't, I'm not picking on anybody again or, or even judging. It's just a fact. We are going to do and we are going to participate in what we love the most. Period. Whether it's a ball game, whether it's entertainment, whether it's whatever. We are going to participate fully in what we enjoy and what we love the most. It goes back to idolatry, folks. I can tell what Judy Sly loves the most. <laughs> I can tell, you know, we can tell. It's that devotion to God. It's that devotion to the kingdom of God. And I can't force that on people. You know, and Jesus isn't going to force it on you either, by the way. You know, Christ wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he's not going to force it on us. He's not going to make us. The kingdom of God is the most joyous residency that we can have, and it's available to us all. But it requires sacrifice. To the things of this world requires devotion and it requires patience it requires patience because God does great things through small things through small people a lot of times gracious God y'all can come on gracious heavenly father we thank you for your love and we thank you for your kingdom God we thank you for the opportunity to be devoted residents, occupants of your kingdom. God, on earth we are in occupied territory. Help us to be true image bearers of Jesus. Help us to reveal your kingdom in heaven here on earth through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions. Help us, God, not to get frustrated. Give us patience when things don't seem to be going our way. Give us a desire. Give us a desire, God, to grow, not just Bemis United Methodist, but your church in general here on earth.